The theme song for the sequel cast is written and performed by Mark with a C. The sequel cast is also a proud member of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. You can listen to the sequel cast streaming on the Stitcher app at stitcher.com. Get more episodes of the sequel cast from sequelcast.com. Enjoy the show. Oh, no. Not again. Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my ragtime gal. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sounds are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to the Sequel Cast. The Sequel Cast is a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. We're kicking off the new year in 2015 by looking at the uh, the Alien films with this episode on the first movie, Alien. With me, I have uh, Thrasher. One year, one nation, one singular sensation. How's everybody doing? And with me, I have a uh, very special guest who I think was last on our uh, Gabriel Knight podcast. He is one of the uh, creators of Battleship Pretension and does several podcasts for them, as well as the More Than One Lesson podcast. Uh, Tyler Smith, welcome to the sequel cast. Thank you for having me. Did you guys uh, purchase the 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 remake or the the 20th anniversary? I did not. No, I was watching the copy off the uh, the earlier, I guess, quadrilogy set. Oh, I meant uh, list, I meant so. Gab- I meant Gabriel Knight. Oh, I see. I think I meant Alien. <laughs> uh, yes, I did. Yep. No, Alien, we'll, t- we'll get to Alien. Sure. But no, yes, I, I did purchase I can't the... talk enough about Gabriel Knight. <laughs> I did purchase the anniversary of uh, Gabriel Knight, yes. Did you enjoy it? I did. I haven't finished it yet, but I enjoyed oh, the okay. of it. Did you? Uh, I like it for the most part. I do think it comes up short uh, with the voice acting. Yes. Um, and it's weird because is... a lot of it, there just seems like they're just imitating the original. Yeah, except for Mosley, who's maybe my favorite character, and uh, you know, I recognize that it's hard to hard to match Mark Hamill when it comes to voice acting. But uh, but I don't know. I feel like the guy they got to do it. I mean, he tried, but it's just the character just somehow isn't quite there. So I'm sorry. Uh, we don't need to talk about that. We can talk about Alien. <laughs> oh no, that's fine. Um, I, I like how the the music was like relatively faithful, but they made it sound better. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, they they send you a, a copy of the of the soundtrack which I have downloaded and will occasionally listen to yep. just in my everyday life. <laughs> so I recall earlier you mentioned you listen to sometimes a track from Gabriel Knight when studying. Does that mean you listen to the new version now or still with the old one? Uh, you know what? It's hard to say because the it would basically be the the St. George's Books music, mm-hmm. and with the new one they kind of have like a sort of a harpsichord sound yeah that is a bit intrusive um whereas before uh (laughs) it was just really good thinking music whereas this time um not unlike they they added other things like at the at the police station they incorporate uh a very annoying uh police whistle 
into mm-hmm. the music that uh, that bothers me. But by and large, I still like the I still like the the music. Um, and but yeah, so I think I think if I'm going to be writing or something, and I want writing music, I think I'll actually go with the old version of the St. George's Books music. Got it. Yeah, you know, as a lark, I kind of recorded a, a audio version of that Gabriel Knight short story, and then I was kind of surprised that they wanted me to do more of it, so I did a full version. That's very exciting. I saw that. Did you get a chance to listen to it? <clears throat> Not yet. No. Okay. I wanna. I wanna do it. I know this is gonna sound weird, but these yeah. days I, I mostly get it when I, anything I listen to. It's usually while I'm working or at the gym, uh. and so I try not to listen to things that I feel like I actually need to pay attention to. Sure, yeah. And no. I feel like I would want to pay attention to that. That's okay. not weird at all. I've been in that position many times. Yeah, I mean, I used to have an Audible account, and I would listen to those um, you know, books on tape as I work, and I would get so distracted with stuff at work that I would, by the right. time I snap back into it, i missed the past 30 minutes and would have to rewind. Yeah. So, um, anyway, to Alien... Yeah, sorry. No, that's fine. Uh, yeah, this film came out in 1979. I was looking at theatrical grosses of U.S. films in 1979. It was the number six movie for the year. Above it at number five was Star Trek The Motion Picture. And below it in uh, number seven was the movie Ten. Hmm. Which number one for 79 was Kramer versus Kramer, which was interesting. Man, it's so fascinating to look at those not even that long ago, probably 15 years and older, oh, yeah. where uh, a movie like Kramer vs. Kramer or Forrest Gump or whatever, a non-blockbuster can be the number one movie outselling uh, major uh, blockbusters. It's, it's insane to me. Well, and I think for most of the 90s, a lot of the comic book films are in the gutter, really, apart from Batman, you know? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <clears throat> So I, th- I think it'll swing back in the other way eventually. But you, when you look at this past year, how something like Jack Ryan did. Yeah. Which is very poorly, but that same kind of movie, you know, did quite well in the 90s. So. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, it's uh, there are times when I wonder if it'll if it'll ever go back, because when you look at the the Marvel slate for the next six to ten years and you realize, oh, OK, well, that's at least six to ten years of a probably a comic book movie being number one. I'm sorry, I keep getting distracted. I, I'm oh, that's so fine. sorry. I think it's kind of disgusting. They publish a list of like what they're doing for the next ten years. It is like, a bummer. Something they just want to make DC sweat. Well, DC is the one that came out first with their big list, and then yeah. But anyway, um, Alien. This yeah, I first saw this movie. I think I was in second grade. My dad decided to show it to my sister and I. <laughs> and I was far too young to watch the film, but it was at home on videotape. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was just terrifying. I don't know. And I, I think the movie really holds up. And, and part of the interesting thing about the whole Alien series is I think every film kind of tackles the sort of story of man versus alien but in a slightly different genre with the overall science fiction setting. And yeah, the, I'd, I'd agree. It, we'll talk about it more when we do the other movies, but yeah. every, every movie in this series is a different genre of movie, completely like completely divorced from the genre of the other movies, despite the fact that certain characters and themes pass through all of them. When did you first see Alien, Tyler? Well, uh, like a lot of people, 
I would say my age who were born after the first one came out um, and then sort of came of age right around the time that the third one uh, was released. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually saw Aliens first. I, oh. That exact same thing happened wow. to me. I ended up watching Aliens on cable with my dad uh, and didn't see Alien until a year or two later. <laughs> yeah, that's actually very common uh, amongst people of a certain age because I think for whatever reason, I think probably because Aliens is more of an action movie and there's an appeal, I think, to uh, a younger audience uh, to have like, oh, these, you know marines with guns and they're going against these aliens and there's a there's a million of them they're all over the place it's kind of a horror movie it's kind of an action movie uh and so i think i think that's actually pretty common amongst people of a certain age and then i saw alien i remember specifically it was in the basement of my house in denver i had rented it from a supermarket video store um back when that was a thing yes and i had just uh I don't know. I, I don't know why. I because I the word on the street was that uh, Aliens was better than Alien, and so for a long time when I was younger, I just thought, well, I mean, what's what's the point if the first one's not as good as the second one? And but then as I got a little bit older, so I was probably about fourteen or fifteen, and I thought, yeah, but I should see I should see where it all started. So I watched it, and I was blown away. Uh, I do not think that aliens is better than alien i did not think it the the moment i saw alien i thought i i don't know who is saying this a lot of people are saying it but when it comes right down to it it's a it's a i really think it's a matter of preference it's which genre do you prefer and i think alien is a much more patient film it's more of a thriller it's more of a horror uh with a lot more suspense and atmosphere uh, Aliens is a very, very good movie, if not a great movie, but my preference is Alien uh, from the moment I saw it. And I'm sorry to put it only in those terms, but uh, but those were, that was the context in which I saw it. I mean, this is really such an atmospheric movie, sort of like uh, Kubrick's 2001. There is a lot of silence in the film. I mean, even mm -hmm. though you have Jerry Goldsmith doing the score, they didn't use vast uh, pieces of the score that he wrote, which frankly annoyed him, I think. Um, yeah. I was digging around on the, the DVD, and on the documentary, there's a clip of Jerry Goldsmith saying he didn't think Alien would be a hit because um, he thought none of the human characters were sympathetic, and they all he just wanted them all to die. Hmm. Which isn't something I agree with, really. I mean, I think the, the characters in the film, there's not a whole lot of characterization to them for the most part, but they're very endearing. It's very much blue-collar workers, space truckers, if you will. Which is something I love about this movie. I love this... It's the it's the future. They may even have androids, but there are still shit jobs that people have to do. And I love that that's who this movie is about. Yeah, it really... I, I do find it's interesting that he would say that because... While I understand that these are not necessarily the most sympathetic characters, nor are they necessarily the most fleshed out, I think the actors really imbue these characters with something, and especially somebody like Yafet Koto uh, or a Tom Skerritt, uh, they manage to find little moments. Uh, and I know a lot of the a lot of the interaction was was improvised, especially in the more casual scenes, and they find these moments that make you. I don't, it's hard to explain. You already said like the idea of shit jobs. Like imagine the people who run the company, you know, uh, 
Waylon Yutani, I believe is. I don't know. I don't know if it's ever actually given a name in this film, but um, I think it's like I I believe the Waylon Yutani logo is on like a piece of equipment that you can okay. see, but that's it. Okay. Yeah, they just say the company, and I feel like that's worth noting. Um, <laughs> to them, it's just <laughs> the name doesn't matter. It's the company. It's our bosses. You do what they tell you to do. That's something that Tom Skerritt says. Uh, and I feel like <clears throat> the idea that, you know, crew expendable, that these are people as mm. if their lives aren't bad enough. And I don't think their lives are necessarily terrible, but certainly they're, these are not glamorous lives. Uh, they, they sacrifice years to do this job. Uh, and the fact that as if it wasn't bad enough, the company sees them as completely expendable and they have to deal with with the alien on top of everything else and at the you know and one of the reasons that I think Ripley really has a response to the uh the computer report of of their orders is that it's that realization of like oh I I thought I was somewhat valuable i knew i wasn't super important but i thought i was valuable but because i happen to be working for this company and i happen to not be an executive i literally am just a host organism for the thing they really want which isn't even a person and it's just uh yeah and i think i think these characters are at the very least their plight is sympathetic but at the same time i mean you know, when Tom Skerritt is in the air shaft and when Harry Dean Stanton is being hunted by the alien, I think that's I think those moments are incredibly sympathetic. We you talk about the, the crew being expendable. I love to speculate about what goes on in the wider world that movies take place in, particularly in science fiction. And like I, I see the way the the crew of this the, the Nostromo is treated and it occurs to me, I bet Waylon Utani has a life insurance policy on all of its deep space crew, and they will make <laughs> money on all, all these people, even if they die. <laughs> oh, absolutely. The idea of being worth more dead than alive certainly comes across the, this entire series. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you look at the, op- the opening text in the film, the, everyone on the ship, their mission, primary mission, was completed. It was mm-hmm. simply to... And a mining ship, and they've mined all the ore, and they're just going back home. And then they're awoken from their slumber for this uh, secret mission, and chaos ensues. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like it's such a, you know, crew crew seven. There are seven people in this film. Mm. And I'm reminded of a film that came out right around this time, uh, Dawn of the Dead, which had four, uh, a primary cast of four. And I just feel like if Alien were made these days, there would be a cast of maybe 15 so that the alien could just cut through more people. But as it is, it's I mean, it really is just one at a time. And I mean, you know, strictly speaking, the body count isn't that high. It's the majority of the crew. It's all but one. But when you think about it, one crew member uh, dies as a function of the being the host organism. One crew member dies because he's a... uh, an android and gets killed by the others and there are really only four that are killed by the actual alien and so that's one of the things that i think is fascinating about this film is that it is that the enemy is everywhere that it's not just the alien i think a, i think a lesser movie would have just had it's them versus the alien but it's them ver, but it's this idea of like even if they beat the alien 
they still are faced with the, they are still on board with a hostile organism which is the character of ash which represents their company and it's the idea of of there's nowhere to hide in this world like the minute they got the minute they got on this on this ship their their lives were going to be changed forever if not just over it's very depressing <laughs> Well, I guess it just, just feeds into that kind of that 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 bleak blue collar future that they all appear uh, t- to live in. And I do like that. That I mean, this came okay. So this was seventy nine. So this was two years after Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And those were one was a fun adventure, and the other was. Uh, certainly science fiction, but it was it was a conciliatory type of thing where the aliens they meant no harm. That is not this film. This seemed to really uh, try to capitalize on the cynicism of the day. And even though Richard Nixon was out of office and Carter was in office, uh, you know there was a recession going on. He was not a very popular president. People didn't have a lot of faith in him, and people didn't have a lot of faith in really anything. Uh, their in- government institutions. Um, you know, private sector institutions, and I feel like this film really reflects the mood of the country at the time. Yeah. I guess I don't know. I wasn't alive at the time, so it, it might have been just happy as a clam, but I feel like not. Sure, and um, I mean, I, I would recommend people watch the documentary that's on the DVD and Blu-ray if you haven't seen it. It's pretty massive but they they mention how in the original draft of the script by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett that there was no android in the plot and that was added later in a rewrite by Walter Hill and David Geiler and like I think that's such a central plot twist that it would have been a much lesser film without that oh and it also just becomes such a core part of the greater alien mythology oh, as, yeah, as, sure. as the series goes on you the the rope, the, the robot characters become so important to both the the plots of the movies, but also just the background of the world. They do, and I mean, just the the decision to not use the music as much, especially near the end of the film, where all you hear is the grinding of the machinery and the hissing of the steam and the footsteps, make it that much more terrifying compared to if it was a very overbearing, brassy score, for instance. I love the sound design in this movie. Sure. The, one of the things that always just gives me chills is when when they're hunting for the alien, and there's that section of the ship that is just used for housing rattling chains, just dripping <laughs> with moisture, which is probably you know condensing <laughs> off some critical ship component. I just I've always found that just the sound of that of that that section of the ship so disturbing that mechanical clanking sound from the chains mixed with the organic sound of the dripping water it, it's just this, creates this grotesque contrast in my ears well and when uh when the dallas character when he is in you know inside mother you know the main computer it sounds like it's breathing it sounds like it's alive and just little choices like that i mean it's i was talking with a friend recently um oh i was on more than one lesson, we were talking about Exodus, Gods and Kings, and we were marveling at who Ridley Scott used to be. Hmm. Um, where every, ever between this and Blade Runner and the and the you know the Apple commercial and even stuff like Legend, every every bit of his films was planned out, and everything, wh- whether it be the tone or the you know the the production design 
or the way the film is cut together or the performances or the sound design, everything worked together uh, to create this this full product that was certainly more than the, the sum of its parts. And I feel like he's just not that anymore. I feel like he's, while he still can direct a movie fairly well, um, it's just, it's nothing, he's not, he is not what he used to be. And I don't necessarily like saying that. I don't like to necessarily sit in judgment on somebody, but it's just so strange to think, uh, actually, <laughs> when we were talking about Exodus, uh, my co-host, Josh, <clears throat> he he said, because we were talking about uh, the scene in which all the crocodiles jump out at people on the river, and Josh said, man, wouldn't it be neat if, if uh, Ridley Scott made a monster movie and, or a creature feature? And I said, well, <laughs> you know, technically he has. Uh, it's right. called Alien. And, it's, and immediately both of us realized, like, yeah, it seems like a completely different person to the extent that we didn't even remember that this, it, in the moment, we didn't re- remember that this was the guy who made his name with Alien. And you mentioned uh, the, the the production design. I really, really want to talk about that because there are some phenomenal artists that had their hand in this movie. Chris Foss, H.R. Giger, uh, Jean Girard. It, it, it is like such an amazing team that came up with what this, the, this environment was going to look like and the things that inhabit it. Yeah, I mean, everything feels, I mean, much like Star Wars that came out two years before this, everything feels kind of lived in. It doesn't look uh, spotless. And uh, as you mentioned, Tyler, this film requires uh, patience to watch, which I like, and I'm not sure if modern audiences would have the patience for a movie to spend the first five minutes of people just waking up from uh, cryosleep. I, it's hard to know at this point. I feel like you know guys like us are so removed from the the average audience. And oh, I don't yes. even I right. don't necessarily mean sure. above, but just I know, you know, the first few minutes of the film are just spent exploring the 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 ship, and it's so like you said, it's lived in. It feels completely real, and the fact that there's none you know none of it is CG. It it all it all exists, um, really means something, and just the 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 quiet with which uh we're going through it like to me that just pulls me in whereas i think most people would would find it boring but who knows i mean i i'd be inclined i I, you know what tonight i think i'm actually when we're done i'm gonna put a call out on facebook not the bp page or the more than one lesson page i'm gonna put it out on my actual page and i'm gonna say hey who here likes the movie alien Hmm. um and and i'm i I'd be curious to know what the answer will be. I think most people do like it, but that might be, it might be people older than a certain age. I don't know. I mean, I find, I mean, I, I, I think you're right. We do engage with, with, with film in a, in a very sort of specific way that may be very different from the, the general audience, but at, at the same time, but before I engaged in film this way, I was part of the general audience. I really feel like I feel like when a movie is good, the audience will rise to the level of the material. I, I just feel that not enough movies come out and give the audience a chance to rise up. I I agree with you uh, to a point. Um, I want to <coughs> excuse me. I want to hope the best of people, and and I think when you look at movies. You know, Alien is very similar to Jaws in a lot of ways. And while Jaws does have right. 
uh, a death right at the beginning. We don't see the shark for a very long time. And instead, we're allowed to just spend a lot of time getting to know characters. And people to this day, of all ages, will talk about how much they love Jaws. And so Alien might be the same. I think, you know, I, I do think that there's something inherent in good filmmaking that, that people just respond to. It's good filmmaking because there's a, at least an emotional uh, univer- universality. I don't know if that's universalism. I don't know what you call it. But uh, something that I think everybody can relate to, at least on a primal level. Um, and my hope is that, you know, when I put that, I, I will email you guys and let you know what, uh, what people say when I put that, uh, that thing out on Facebook because uh, now I'm actually very curious. Yeah, we'll have to review that on a future episode. Right. Um, I mean, gee, what else? You know, I have a confession to make about the Alien films. I've never seen any of them in a theater. Hmm. And I think this first one in particular would be great on the big screen, just with all the visual detail. Yeah, I saw for the, gosh, I guess the 25th anniversary, I saw Alien on the big screen uh, in Chicago. And... uh, it was, as I'm sure you can imagine, wonderful. Um, it's so interesting that a film as claustrophobic as this and, and enclosed as this would would work just as well on the big screen as a film like Lawrence of Arabia. Um, and uh, But it does. And I will say, you know, there's a weird thing to say. Um, Alien is one of the first movies that I got on Blu-ray. Hmm. Um, and I when I watched it, I was so blown away. It is one of the most beautiful transfers. It might be the best I've seen Alien look. And that includes the big screen. Like, you really feel... It was the first time you really felt the depth of the ship. That when we're looking down a hallway, I feel like it genuinely stretches forever. Uh, so if, if, if your listeners, if you have not seen it... Uh, on Blu-ray, I highly recommend it because it's just gorgeous. Absolutely, and it's a, a film that where you can imagine it could very easily have a lesser transfer with so much of it being in the shadows and so many flashing lights in it and so forth. I mean, I it yeah, the quality popped out to me when I watched it recently as well, and and the Blu-ray I saw before that was um, I got a I guess sort of an advanced copy of the Super Mario <coughs> Brothers movie on Blu-ray. <laughs> and oh, yes. they did the best they could with that transfer of what they had, but it's awfully grainy still, you know. And um, and that's a film that came out, what, 20 years ago, I guess? Yeah. Or, or something. Yep. And this, you know, the Alien film, this came out in 1979, so whatever it is, 30, almost 35 years or something at this point? 36, jeez. Uh, it's a much older film, but the transfer is, is spotless, and, and no doubt Fox has taken uh, greater care, and they had a bigger budget to do a transfer for an Alien Blu-ray than Super Mario Brothers um, Blu-ray. But, yeah, I mean, that they can make an old film look that good and look so shiny and, and, and beautiful. And, and you mentioned Jaws, which is a, a good point, too, in that you don't see the alien that much in the film. Yeah. You, you get that wonderful close-up of the mouth opening and it dripping, and you see it crawl around, and but just for for flashes. I mean, perhaps the longest you see it is when it pops out of John Hurt's stomach and scuttles away. Yeah, and that that is the scene that taught me what body horror truly is. <laughs> 
It's weird. I never find that scene that gross. <laughs> I don't know what it is. When I was a kid, I, I mean, certainly the scene is, I mean, it's directed and, and acted impeccably. And I know it sounds strange, but I think a lot of uh, a lot of credit is due to uh, John Hurt in that scene, because even though he's not necessarily playing a lot of emotions aside from, you know, horror, um, to play that level of pain and to sell that something from on the inside of you is, is coming out, is ripping out, uh, and just the, the, the fear on, and confusion on everybody else's face, and I know that they didn't tell the actors exactly what was going to be happening. Um, that scene is very powerful, and, and it is gross and all that, and it is scary, but uh, I, think, I think at that point, by the time I saw it, I think I knew, I knew it was coming, partially because I had seen Aliens and partially because I had seen Spaceballs. Spaceballs, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I knew it was coming. Uh, I think it's it's handled really well. It's very effective. But I think that's one where, you know, not unlike not unlike the the shower scene in Psycho, I wish that I could go back and see it for the first time, you know, the day it opened and have that scene happen and just watch as people flip out and probably be one of the people that flipped out. That sounds wonderful. I wish I could do that. Yeah. yeah, that that is also an experience I would love to share. I'll, I'll talk about this more next week, but like th- that, I'm so thankful I saw Aliens when I did because I went into that experience raw, and and I love what what going into a movie raw can do to the to, to the experience of watching it. Thinking back to when I first saw this on video with my dad, and I don't think that scene scared me as a small child. I, I mean, the biggest memory I had from that is at the end where Sigourney Weaver is in her her night clothes and my dad tapped me on the shoulder and said see she's almost naked um <laughs> which it yeah is obvious yes but well you know, how would you have known if he hadn't told you right i mean it was a very strange thing because like you get caught up in this moment you think she's safe at the end and then in classic uh horror movie tradition the monster has a little bit of life left in him yeah and um you gotta love dads. I mean, you yes. saw you saw Alien with your dad. Yeah, Thrasher, you saw Aliens with your yep. dad, correct? Indeed, I did. Yeah, and my and, uncle uh, Clark actually, he was there too. Oh, yeah, dads, uncles, grandpas, like they're they're just the best. You know, I believe the very obviously uh, the first rated R movie I ever saw was Die Hard Two, and I saw it with my dad and my brother oh. when I was eight years old. Arguably too young <laughs> to see it. Well, I think by modern standards, it's fairly tame for an R rating, but... Oh, but but you know what? So, and... so much of that film worked its way into my uh, my action figure adventures. Oh, like yeah. a character gets chopped up in a propeller. Boy, that worked <laughs> its way into pictures I drew, uh, fights that my, my action figures would have. And, uh, and then I saw Aliens not long after that, where a friend of mine had a VHS copy, and we all watched it. And that one actually... Fri- I was, you know, eight or nine... Yeah, and uh, that one actually frightened me considerably, just because the idea of aliens popping out from the wall or the vents like that really that really got me. I mean, that is something you reminded me of, you know, as a kid going to a sleepover at a friend's house and seeing what movies they had you could watch, but it was pretty. You had to pick from a pretty limited selection, and I just think of now with with Netflix and all these things where the world is your oyster. I know. I mean, I've literally fallen asleep while trying to pick something from Netflix to watch. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost... 20 minutes trying to make a choice. 
It's almost too much selection. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and uh, so let's see. I will say this, that um, at this point, I mean, I can watch Alien. I've, at this point, I've seen it. I don't know. How, how often do you, how much do you think you guys have seen Alien? Oh, gosh. Uh, all the way through, I have to have seen it like 10 or so times. But this is also one of those movies where when I was growing up, and even to this day, if I saw it on cable, I would stop what I was doing and watch it. So who knows how many hours of my life I've devoted to this movie. Mm -hmm. I've seen it, gee, I don't know, maybe ten times. It's one of those I watch maybe once every, I've probably seen it once a year since I was in college, I guess. Yeah, I've probably seen it about probably 10 to 15 times. Uh, and, you know, not unlike a movie like Jaws or Psycho, the parts that are effective are still effective. To me, I mean, there's no there's no scene more heartbreaking, but also just exhausting and terrifying as when Dallas goes into the, uh, the vents. Mm. Uh, that, I mean, first off, because on top of everything else, there's a claustrophobia element. And this I this idea that like, you know, he's got this flamethrower type thing. He's he's got his headset. He's trying to manage all of these, and it's you realize just how outmatched these people are. But that he's you know he's the captain. He's trying to be brave. He's trying to do his best. And it's Tom Skerritt who I think is inherently likable, um, and and just you never and you don't know where that thing is, and then you know and then. It reaches out for him. We don't see what happens to him, but we don't need to. Um, just the the idea of it's not enough that the alien is simply there. It re, it it so quickly reaches out, and it's just and it's like it's reaching out for us. That would be a nice moment, a nice three D moment if the film was in three D. You know what? This movie would be. I think I've said this before uh, on other shows. This would be a really good movie to convert to three D because I feel like you'd really I talked about the depth of the ship and the depth of space I feel like that would really come through if they did a, a good transfer and, and, it, that, and, and it would have to be a good transfer this film would deserve oh yeah. the best transfer yeah yeah because um, I don't I, I don't think I usually like it when when a film is converted to 3D but uh, I saw Finding Nemo 3D hmm. and that one they clearly put a lot of care into it because you really got a sense of the depth of the ocean and I feel like it would be interesting to have a movie like this that you don't want it to be in 3D. You don't want to be brought into it any more than you already are, uh, but it but it brings you in anyway. I think that'd be interesting. Have you seen the director's cut of Alien? I have, yes, and I do not prefer it. Um, it there's not huge difference aside from the one scene with uh, Tom Skerritt. But they also like re-edited other parts of the film to make it a bit shorter. Yeah, uh, and here's here's what gets me. So the scene with Tom Skerritt, you mean when he's uh, all cocooned up and stuff? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, that's the thing. They include include that one, and then they take out another scene with Tom Skerritt that I love. And it's when he is about to go into the vents, but first he's uh, in the 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 mother uh, chamber and is you know, asking for analysis on their plan to neutralize the alien. And it says, do not compute. And then he types in, what are my chances? And 
which is of course uh, a question that, uh, that no computer is going to understand, but he's just typing it anyway. And it says, do not compute. And he just, he, he looks resigned, like knowing that this is probably not going to go well for me, but I have to do it anyway. It's a really great moment of acting by Tom Skerritt. And it's one of my favorite scenes in the film. And it got, and it was removed uh, in the director's cut. And that bummed me out tremendously. I think I understand why it was removed because, um, you know, in retrospect, now that we know that Ripley is like one of the greatest movie characters ever, and she is the real star of this series, uh, I think uh, playing down the other characters, especially a character like Dallas, who, you know, if you go back and watch the movie, Tom Skerritt has top billing. Um, it's him and then, I believe, Sigourney Weaver. And so, and he was probably the biggest star uh, in the film at the time. And so... But, of course, we know in retrospect that he doesn't last, and so I think maybe that scene was removed because it, we've got to move things ahead and let's get, let's, let's get Dallas out of the way so that we can get to Ripley as the heroine, and, which is something that I don't, necessarily, that I don't agree with, and I think it, it, it hurts the, I think it hurts the film. You know, you uh, mentioned the director's cut. I remember when the, it, the director's cut was coming out, it was like, you know, sort of such such big news in sci-fi fandom. Uh, back in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, we had a late-night horror movie host, Dr. Max Madblood, who did uh, Madblood's movie. And they, because of, I guess, his some connection, they had gotten a hold of the first five minutes of the director's cut and played that on a night when they were showing another movie in the middle of the show, played the first five minutes of the director's cut of Alien. Is the first I, five minutes that different? Uh, I, the only thing that I remember is different is that there was a scene where we get to see the, the the colony before it's destroyed, and there's like a there's like a technician with like a with like a oh wait you know maybe I'm not thinking of alien maybe I'm thinking of aliens that that I, sounds correct because that is yeah. a, a human colony. Um, and he's like, "Do you want to see where Daddy works?" And he points, and like you can see the 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 crashed space jockey ship off in the distance. Okay, yes, I believe that is probably aliens. Because if I had yeah, guessed, I, I'd say he's talking I'm a to new. Wires crossed in my head on that one. <laughs> yeah, because that would make a difference. Uh, that because that would be one of the first things that we see. And then, although again, it's you know, it's I, I'm a big fan of most directors' cuts. Uh, I like the idea of it, but at the same time. Uh, for some movies, I think, you know, a, the director's cut or what is often called the extended cut, I, I feel like it's usually just, hey, here's some more stuff that really shouldn't be in the film and it was cut for a reason. Um, and uh, I feel like that's an example. We didn't necessarily need to see that. I guess maybe to introduce us to New, but I feel like she has a pretty good introduction as it is. I mean, yeah, if you look at the, the Alien Quadrilogy box sets, there's extended cuts for all the films, and other than Aliens, they're all... Well, some of the Alien 3 stuff, I guess, is interesting, but, like, Alien Resurrection, that extended cut has more jokes at the end. And a different <laughs> ending, it's just bizarre. Um, yeah. And even in the interview for the DVD, Ridley Scott says, they're calling this director's cut for marketing purposes, but I actually prefer the theatrical cut. I just thought there this was a fun exercise. Yeah, yeah. It's I could I could definitely see that a fun exercise is what it often winds up being. Um, but yeah, uh, so do you, of of the whole series, uh, which one do you guys prefer? 
I think it would have to be this this first one. Like it just sets okay. up such a good creeping atmosphere the whole way through, and um, and at the same time, it's also sort of like a, a lean film. I like that the story is is kind of simple and and focused. I, I think for me, it actually is going to have to be Aliens, uh, if only because that was my introduction to this whole series of films. Uh, I, I that it's a heartbreaking decision to make because I really I hate having to Alien and Aliens are so good. I hate having to choose between them. So I think the only reason Aliens gets the edge is because that was the first one I saw. So Tyler, what would you rate Alien out of um, five stars? Uh, five stars. Five stars. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's just a film that, like I said, it's always effective when I watch it in every possible way. Everything it is trying to do, it succeeds at. Whether it be uh, incredible tension uh, or set, or setting the atmosphere um, and creating a sense of dread, it, it does all of that. And I think it's it's such a it's a remarkable filmmaking achievement on every level, and I feel I should note I should note that uh, a couple years ago, Battleship Pretension polled our listeners uh, about the top fifty horror movies of all time, and uh, number one was Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, and number two was Alien, hmm. beating out Psycho, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, wow. Halloween, The Exorcist. Uh, you know, it beat it beat out all but uh, but you know Kubrick. And for a while, it was actually even beating that. And so it was just very strange um, that certainly the film, and I'm sure you'll talk about this more as, as your series goes on, uh, each film does tend to have kind of a different tone and maybe even... A, they're all science fiction, but they always seem to have another element to them. I think this one is very much like a horror film. I think... Uh, the second one's very much like an action film. The third one is very much like a misfire. And the fourth one, I think the fourth one, oddly enough, it's not that good of a movie, but I feel like that one is actually the most, the, the purest sci-fi hmm. um, with action elements and all that. But there's, there's so much strange stuff in the fourth one that uh, a lot of people hate, a lot of people make fun of it, but I'm like, there are scenes and elements of that film that cannot be dismissed. But... Um, but yeah, to me, Alien is is one of the most perfect movies ever. Thrasher, I don't want to sound like I'm parroting, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say five. This is this is one of those perfect movies. It's it's a movie that's so good uh, that it, it's you just don't want to you don't want to compare it to any other movie because it just it would feel like it would be cheapening both movies in the comparison. I will both of you and also give it five stars it's just it holds up again and again and I, I tend to notice different things each time I watch uh, the film and every time I see sort of the last 15 minutes or so where Ripley is running through the corridors and there's a flashing red emergency lights I start mm -hmm. to hyperventilate a bit even though I know what's happening and what's coming as it's just so tense and uh, such a lovely film Let's play pitch a sequel. Let's pretend no sequels were made to Alien. Okay. What would we do? What's your idea for a concept for a sequel? Hmm. I've got one. Okay, go Thrasher. 
Alien Last Contact. Uh, so uh, the company tries to uh, restart uh, its uh, st- tries to uh, get uh, another colony going to investigate the possibilities offered by the crashed alien ship. Uh, however, there's one thing they forgot to take into account: aliens built that ship. So what happens is uh, representatives from the race that built that ship and, and uh, come, and they see this as just like it effectively an industrial accident. Not that that will ever be directly communicated. Uh, the aliens will never speak English. There will never be direct communication between any of the... I'll just call them space jockeys for now. Space jockeys and the human characters. They will be made to appear very distant and as psychologically different from humans as the alien monster is from humans. Just in a different sort of intellectual level. So they see this crashed spaceship as an industrial accident. And uh, as uh, whaling yutani experiments are causing more aliens to be bred... Uh, the space jockeys effectively decide to sterilize the planet to clean up this accident and take back the the ship, which is theirs. So it ends up devolving into a very one-sided war between the space jockeys and the colonists. And I would actually, uh, I would actually not have anyone return from the original, from the original film, uh, except for, uh, actually except for, uh, for, for Ash, uh, the robot, there would actually be multiple models of him working in the colony. Uh, and it, it would be this, this weird sort of dehumanizing thing to have these, these copies of the same man uh, working with you. It would just be this, this strange science fiction touch. It would, and, it, and it would be very bleak. But just like aliens, there would be one survivor who manages to get off the planet as it's being sterilized uh, to hopefully make it back to Earth and tell people exactly what happened. That is surprising they never brought Ash back for the sequels, considering how much they use Bishop over and over again. <laughs> yeah, that is that is a, a bummer. Maybe because, you know, the second one is so far in advance. It's, it's what, 57 years? That's true. So maybe they've got this new model. But yeah, it, wouldn't it be awesome to see Ash back? But oh, yeah, yeah the, the, the closest uh, that I would have, we've never actually, uh, aside from the horrendous Alien vs. Predator films, uh, we've never actually seen <laughs> the aliens on Earth. I would actually like right. to see, not unlike a movie like Jurassic Park, I would actually like to see the company has gotten their hands on, uh, you know, an alien or a queen or whatever you want it to be. And they are putting the, the, the bioweapons aspect into, uh, into effect. And they <clears throat> are like... I don't know if maybe they're threatening to use it against Russia or something like that, um, or they're going to sell it to the highest bidder. And then, of course, the aliens uh, break out, and now they are on Earth. Like, it would be weird to see. Obviously, there would be the the homes and stuff, and the neighborhoods would look uh, futuristic, but there would still be an element of, like, you know, suburban mm. sprawl or, or just an urban situation, and just aliens you know crawling into people's houses and such and just slowly but surely taking over the world um and the realization that there is no one place to kill them all they are now everywhere and they are a fact of uh they are a fact of the world now and perhaps even this idea that okay well now we as now we as countries cannot fight each other because now if we if we keep trying to fight each other then uh, the aliens will not have anybody fighting them. Uh, 
And so it kind of bands us together to, uh, to avoid uh, extinction. So something like that. Mine would take place immediately after the first film, and it's uh, Ripley's in cryosleep with her cat, and all of a sudden, you know, there may be a, a few days into the, the trip, and all of a sudden the alarm goes off. She's waking out of cryosleep again, and she notices her cat is acting very strangely. In fact, the alien, um, somewhere along the way, has infected her cat. And so her cat uh, becomes a cat-alien hybrid, and she has to struggle with being on this tiny little escape pod ship, but also having the reality of having to kill your own pet now that it's a monster. I feel like that's more of a short film, but who am I to judge? Um, I will say that I did this, uh, a a couple of things to note. (laughs) Well, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. No, that's fine. That sounds awesome because then you're, you're stuck in an even smaller area with this thing. Um, and it gives you the, the, the possibility of, okay, well, what would an alien that sprung from a cat, what would that look like? And it Mm -hmm. gives you the opportunity to have it be more flexible and, and more dangerous. Um, so a couple of things. Number one, uh, I did not see this, but a friend of mine did. Uh, at Universal Halloween Horror Nights this last year, there was alien. There was an Alien versus Predator maze. Now, of course, oh, nice. ev- hmm. everything about that franchise is horrible. But uh, frankly, I feel like I wish they had just eliminated the Predator aspect of it. Even though I'm sure that, again, I didn't walk through it. But if I had to guess, I would say there's a few skinless corpses hanging upside down. Sure. Um, so there is some genuinely horrific uh, predator imagery, but can you imagine it's just a maze of of alien? I, for, mm-hmm. I've been to Halloween Horror Nights before. Uh, I went when they did uh, one that was those um, inspired by the thing, and so the the art direction was great. The makeup was wonderful, and I can just imagine walking into this maze, and it's like you're in a spaceship, and just with you know metal floors and just panels that the pop open and there's the alien. It, it sounds great to me. It also sounds so terrifying uh, that part of me, when I heard that, I thought, <coughs> I thought, man, I really want to do that. But then I thought, well, wait, no, alien is alien is already scary to me and I'm not even there. Um, <laughs> and so uh, I can, I, I'd be interested. I didn't, uh, I didn't look up any photos or anything, but I think I probably will after this. Cause now I'm curious to see what it looked like in there. But uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing uh, is on Battleship Pretension, I will occasionally do a thing. I haven't done it for a while, but uh, something called fantasy casting mm-hmm. in which I would imagine a movie that existed, that, that exists in the past and uh, imagine like, okay, if they remade it, how's, how's the, not that I think they should, but what's the best way to do it? And so I did one for Alien. And uh, I'm going to run it by you guys and see what you think. I tried okay. to think a little bit outside the box uh, a little bit. Uh, the director would be Nicholas Winding Refn. Hmm. I think you need somebody with a strong visual sense and and a fair amount of patience, and I feel like that's what he does. Um, uh, written by David S. Goyer. I went with just kind of a standard writer. Um, Ripley would be Zoe Saldana. Hmm. Dallas would be Matt Damon. Uh, because I feel like you need somebody who's kind of heroic, but and also he's actually getting a little bit older now. Um, Ash would be Killian Murphy. 
Sure. Parker, which is the uh, Yafit Koto role, would be Mickey Rourke. Mm. Oh. Lambert, uh, which is the uh, Veronica uh, Cartwright part, would be Carrie Mulligan. Brett would be Delroy Lindo, so I switched the the races of those two characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Kane would be uh, Timothy Oliphant. So uh, that's I, I liked the idea of having a predominantly like a younger cast, except for the two mechanics. And uh, I don't know people that that we as as viewers inherently like. I inherently like Carrie Mulligan and Matt Damon and Zoe Saldana and Timothy Oliphant, and so. Um, while it might not work out really well with the idea of the, uh, kind of the working class grunts, um, I feel like it to, to watch, to watch not merely good looking people, but good looking people that the audience has a connection with to watch them get, uh, pulverized, uh, I think is very appealing to me. So anyway, I just thought, uh, just thought you, you might find that interesting. Yeah, I think you know another interesting director could be uh, Neil Blomkamp. Well, I, he's it's funny you mentioned that. Yeah, wasn't he like going to do something that's right. alien related recently? Right. Yeah, yes, yeah. I just they, posted yeah. A, a link. He he apparently was trying to pitch a new alien movie and had a lot of production art commissioned, but it looks like sadly nothing ever came of it. Although the production art is gorgeous and speaks to some interesting notions, such as the aliens being kept in a containment facility on Earth. Yeah, it's I feel like that's the next step. It's it surprises me they haven't done it yet. I think they got so damn focused on the alien versus predator thing that I think they failed to recognize just how powerful these aliens are on their own. And I think Prometheus is just a a giant swing and a miss. Um, But uh yeah, I'm looking at these at the images now, and I had seen them before, and I think it's it's such a neat, <coughs> excuse me, it's such a neat idea. Some of these look like they're true to the to the world of Alien, but no, but different enough that I feel like there's a, a novelty there. Well, I'm fascinated by the idea that that uh, apparently it looks like he was bringing back the character of Hicks. But the other thing that the, the most striking, and there's lots of striking pieces of art in here, but the one that is most striking to me, and I would love to know what the idea behind it is, but there is a piece of production art of Ripley in this biomechanical suit that looks like it's derived from space jockey technology. I, I really want to know what context that would have existed in within the film. I know it's very strange to see and it's just and it makes you you know it's it's almost like Stanley Kubrick's uh, Napoleon or mm. or various Orson Welles projects where you see this and you just think this looks so much better than most stuff released uh that I'm just I'm so and maybe the film would would have turned out to be bad I'm not a huge fan of Neil Blomkamp cuz uh, Elysium was my f- least favorite movie of last year um but I think when looking at these it's like well I think he's headed in the right direction and uh, alas, it is not to be. Yeah, definitely very pretty uh, production art. Um, speaking of which, with sort of sequel news and stuff, has any have you seen the Ant Man trailer that came out? Yes, Just I did. did. Yes. I think it's a bit silly. Like I don't. But every time I say that about a Marvel film, it makes hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> oh, it's going to make the money. Don't worry. Uh, yeah. Not not that I think you're worried, but um, no. But yeah, silliness, I think as long as it, and it looks like it does a little bit, as long as it calls attention to how silly it is, it can be, 
um, I think that will help a lot. And and at the end of the trailer, you've got Paul Rudd saying, "Is it too late to change the name?" And I mm-hmm. think that gives you a little not a little reassurance that hey, we we recognize that it's kind of s- strange to have a character named Ant Man and have us all be rooting for him. So, uh, so yeah, I saw it. I, the film I'm sure will be just fine. It looks like, uh, all of the actors involved are, are really committed to it. And I, I think that's what you need, especially with something as, as silly as this. But, well, that's um, actually, I loved what I saw in the trailer, but that's actually the one thing that I, I didn't like that I saw was the line about, is it too late to change the name only because, I see that and I immediately flash back to the trailer for Green Lantern where, you know, I pledge allegiance to a lantern I got from some alien. Um, I, I, I really need what I want to know is, you know, have the filmmakers bought into this premise enough that they can make a good movie. Uh, When I, when I see that, is it too late to change the name? I'm really worried that that's a sign that the filmmakers are dismissive of the premise and aren't invested in it. Unfortunately. And I think the the difference is that there's nothing inherently silly about Green Lantern, um, but that they tried to, but he's not necessarily uh, a name that people immediately know. Uh, And so I think by casting somebody like a Ryan Reynolds, they tried to uh, sort of play into like any reservations people might have. Whereas Ant-Man sounds like maybe the least effective superhero ever. It it sounds like like a parody. It sounds like a character from The Tick. Um, and so I feel like it's more necessary for them. I think they'll still commit to the seriousness of it, but I think they they will need to acknowledge, uh, and they, they might do it in a scene or two, I think they need to acknowledge the, the I'll say this, the perceived silliness of it. And it's so, nice to see Michael Douglas in something. I know, I really like him. And, uh, and it's kind of a bummer what they're doing with that character because Hank Pym was, you know, part of the Avengers for a long time and he was the same age as all of them. And so it looks like they're really relegating. And he was, I believe, responsible for the character of Ultron, correct? I believe at one early on, I believe that he was. Yeah. And I think that they're changing. I Obviously, I think they're changing that, which kind of bums me out because he was a major part of the Avengers and uh, I like that they're incorporating the character and they're having a good actor play him and who knows what he'll the role he'll play in the larger mythology, but uh, but I do feel like they're shortchanging that character a little bit. I mean, they'll have to keep all these different spinoff characters away f- by the time they get in Avengers 3, right? Can we possibly have a movie with two dozen different superhero characters running around? On the other hand, we have the X-Men, which has quite a lot of characters. Well, and when you get to the Infinity War, mm, you, you sure. need a bunch of people running around That's and getting right. killed. Yep. Spoilers, everybody. Everybody dies. Well, well, we we know how that saga ends. So, you know, I, I will I will grin uh, slyly anytime anyone talks about that. Your comment oh, yeah. about everyone dying, it's a sort of a, we can segue into the what you're watching segment. Um, I watched a few recent films. I saw the new uh, Hobbit 3, um, Battle of Five Armies. And when I saw it in the theater, uh, towards the end, a full-grown man stood up and announced very loudly, everybody is dying. I don't like this movie. And then he sat back down. He didn't walk out of the movie. But I thought, what a strange thing to to say. I mean, it is true. A lot of people do, or some characters do die in the new Hobbit movie. But, like, yeah. why would you feel the need to stand up and announce that in a theater? Like, if it's a kid, I can understand it. But 
Yeah. Yeah, people are kind of the worst. Um, yeah. You know, this is why I try not to... <clears throat> I don't like the idea of sounding superior or anything like that. Uh, you know, we all have our flaws and we all have our blind spots. But something like that makes me want to say, like, you, you shouldn't go to movies. You're not... Movies aren't for you. They're for people who won't stand up and announce things in the theater. Um, aside from stuff like, oh, my, you know, my husband is having a heart attack. Please call a doctor. Th- that's fine. Right. I get that. But everybody's dying. I don't like this. <laughs> well, it is and so it, strange. Did he, did he sit back down? He did sit back down. I thought he would walk out after saying something like that. But no, he sat back down. And there was maybe ten minutes left in the movie. Like it's so weird because I it does seem like there are people who don't understand how movies work. Yeah, and like, like, like with, with like somebody like loudly declares what the subtext of a scene is, or but there was a western I saw ages ago with the climax of the western. One of the cowboys passes a secret note for a number of reasons, and it's <laughs> framed in such a way that you, the audience, can see that he is passing a secret note, and yet this person very loudly behind me did you see him pass that note what's going on uh, like oh, yes everyone <laughs> saw it that's the only thing that was in the frame was him passing the note yeah and and just and that idea of of did you see him pass that note what what's it what's going on what does it say uh, well i didn't make the movie yes <laughs> i'll you will both find out at the same time and it'll be a fun reveal um i saw the imitation game recently amongst uh, many other films. And uh, there was, next to me, there was this older couple who, they weren't talking the whole time, but every once in a while there'd be a plot development or a character development, and the, the, the guy would lean over to his wife and would say something. And I don't remember exactly what it is, but uh, have you guys seen the film? No. Okay. Well, uh, the character uh, is remarkably intelligent, is based on a true story, and and at some point, he, he undergoes some uh, medical uh, procedures. I won't give you the context or anything like that. Uh, and it's kind of screwing with his ability to think. Um, he, he, he's a little cloudy as a result. And so as that's happening, the, it's, it's, the most, it's maybe the most obvious thing in the world. There's no interpretation here. Uh, there's no room f- for confusion. But the guy still felt the need to lean over to his wife and say, the procedures interfering with his ability to think. <laughs> and it's just like, man, uh, I it's just, I don't know. Do you, maybe you're trying to, it's either he thinks his wife is dumb or he's trying to reassure her that he is not dumb. Um, well, and might that be a he's able of, to process yeah, things. Might be a little bit of both. I mean, I, I a more recent movie I saw was into the woods, um, mm. which I enjoyed, but what was really funny is a lot of, families brought their little kids to see it and yes it, it is rated pg but there's moments that are intense yeah and um you've seen the show haven't you thrasher oh indeed i have right and there's the cinderella bit where the two stepsisters are trying to fit into the shoe and then they cut off the parts of their feet to try and fit in and i mean it's not graphic in the film they cut away but as soon as that happened like people were gasp like little kids and parents were gasping in the audience and I do think the marketing for that was a bit misleading in that it makes it seem all cutesy and fun, which most of the movie is. 
Well, I think that's in part because, you know, we're familiar with the classic forms of the fairy tales and how dark and violent they can be. But I I feel like most people aren't familiar with the roots of the source material. I'm certain that the marketing department had no familiarity with the source material. Yeah, it surprises me that Disney opted to do that because while I understand, you know, Disney is sort of the owner of all these fairy tales now, um, it, uh, yeah, it just, I don't understand what, how they could look at the Stephen Sondheim musical and say, oh, this would be perfect because it brings all of these fairy tales that people associate with Disney, it brings them all into one place. It's like, yes, it does, and then it kills characters. Uh, characters get things cut off. Uh, characters uh, have affairs. There's right. a sexual component to certain interactions. Uh, it, it explores the idea that there's no such thing as happily ever after. Very adult things, you know. It's it the the musical uses stuff that we all learned when we were children, and says, okay, well, you're not a child anymore. So now let's explore this further. And the fact that Disney just went ahead with it and changed a couple things here and there, but it's still. If I find myself wondering how satisfactory the film as is was ever going to be. If they had just gone straight ahead with like Sweeney Todd rated at PG-13 and didn't change anything, I think, okay, great. This is for adults and I think we'll all like it. Or just, I don't know, just have an original musical that is similar and brings all these fairy tales together and have it be overtly for kids. Right, and ABC has their own TV show, Once Upon a Time. Exactly. Which is owned by Disney with the same concept. And then, you know, going to this film... Uh, they had a trailer for a live-action Cinderella film that's coming out. Yeah. Which makes it confusing, because then you're watching a film with Cinderella in it with all these other things happening. No, Um, I haven't seen that trailer, but do they somehow recontextualize Cinderella into being about a final battle between good and evil? Because that's all (laughs) I expect. (laughs) Where Cinderella is leading a giant army? Yeah. uh, Of mice and and pumpkins. No, in fact, the trailer feels like it gives the whole movie away, and it seems like they're being really... uh, scene for scene faithful to the Disney cartoon it simply looks like a live action version of that but it's directed by Kenneth Branagh so who knows um, Thrasher did you see a film over the holiday break actually yes I I did I, I got together uh, with, with some friends and what we were in kind of a sort of an act of, of, of holiday rebellion, we were going to watch nothing but Barbarian and Swords and Sandals movies. <laughs> but by the end of the night, we ended up watching The Christmas That Almost Wasn't. And that was – that's I, – I don't know if I, – I can't call it a good movie, but it's the most delightful bad movie I think I've ever seen. And, and what – is it a TV cast. movie? What is it? No, it was it was a movie. It was a movie written uh, by Paul Tripp, who is the creator of uh, uh, of Tubby the Tuba. I don't know if you've figured the animation that went with it, but it's this it's this Christmas story where he he plays a uh, he plays a, a lawyer and Santa comes to him for help. Uh, what happens is that uh, a miser who hates Christmas somehow owns the North Pole and is going to evict Santa and his elves if they can't make the rent money. And so it's Santa, it's Santa and his lawyer trying to find a way to make rent money for the North Pole. And, you know, there, there's, go- there's goofing around, there's these kind of delightfully bizarre, almost sort of Seussian musical numbers. Uh, 
and I got to admit, the ending actually is kind of touching the way they the way that they uh, they save Santa. But all your Christmas special cliches are there. The magical gift, uh, the old miser. It, it, and it was just like, and, but you can see you can see all the holes in the production, but it still was very delightful to watch. Hmm. And uh, brother. Uh, uh, was it brother? No, no, sorry, it's uh, Glenn Yarbrough sings the theme song for the movie in his in his trademark warbly voice. Is it as good as his uh, numbers from the Hobbit cartoon? Uh, actually, I want to say it's it's better only because there's there's a little more sort of play with the language uh, in in the intro, and there's also this delightful bit of animation where it's a a cartoon miser in a flying machine trying to shoot down Santa. <laughs> as he uh, tries to deliver presents. The rest of the movie doesn't live up to that standard of action established in the opening credits, but I was I was still... The movie won me over by the time I was done. Hmm. Well, let's move on to the Paul Goebel Memorial mashup. Why don't you explain how this works? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, I take two impressions, neither one I am qualified to make, combine them into one impression that combines the names of the uh, figures involved... And uh, Matt and our guests, you have to figure out what this combined impression is. Okay. All right, so you're all ready? Yeah. Yeah. I'm terrible at these, but sure. (laughs) (laughs) In a way, we are all terrible at these. Yes, including Jim Bruce, who did them. (laughs) Yeah. One day we need to get him on the show. I would love to, to see how he reacts to this. All right. So anyway, here, here, here we go. Here's the Paul Goebel Show Memorial mashup. Harold, please bring me the news of my kingdom. What's that? The colonies are rebelling. This is a period of civil war. Dispatch the redcoats, and also make sure there's some giant lizards in the background. We'll show them what for. Also, bring me Benjamin Franklin. He's part of the Rebel Alliance and a traitor. Oh, good God. (laughs) Do you think you have it? (laughs) I think so. All right. Is it King George Lucas? It is King George Lucas. Oh, good God. Damn it. Now I remember why I hated these so much. <laughs> yeah, I think the only like the the only joy in the mashups is experiencing other people's pain <laughs> with the mashups. Yeah, yeah. The Paul Goebel show is not on anymore. Uh, it's I, it's. I'm glad to know that you guys are you know taking up the mantle of the most annoying part of it. Well, I mean, it was it was passed on to us by the king of TV himself. It would be treason if we stopped doing it. Well, that's what Paul Goebel does, is he ruins things. <laughs> I, I was uh, talk, I was at uh, Denny's the other day with a friend, and, and as we were leaving, we were standing in the parking lot talking, and I uh, got some texts from a number that I didn't recognize <laughs> um, saying, like, uh, hey, I happened to be wearing a red sweater and saying, like, nice red sweater, asshole. And then I'm like, what? <laughs> And then uh, something like you, like don't ever come to this Denny's again. I'm like, what the hell? And I look around, and there's Paul fucking Goebel uh, sitting in his car in the parking lot, just laughing hysterically at me, because that's who he is, and uh, that's who you've chosen to emulate. Well done. Well, only in that, only in the respect of the mashups, and even then, we're emulating Jim Bruce. But all right, fair enough. And I guess if he gave you permission, then that's fine. He 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 did. You can you can listen to that episode. Is that the what was that? Was that the Wrath of Khan episode? Um. Hmm. 
No, I think we had him on for the uh, um, first contact. Oh, yes, it was Star Trek First Contact. The first time we had him on. Um, well, t Tyler, thanks for coming on the sequel cast to talk Alien. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry that I uh, went on so many tangents. Oh, that's all right. And um, and you were wondering what, what uh, guest we were having from the Battleship Retention podcast fleet coming up on these future Alien episodes. And for Alien 3, looks like we're having Jim on. From I Do Movies Badly. Yes, from I Do Movies Badly. And then... Of my email got there it goes for alien resurrection we're going to have on david bax and um josh long and josh as you mentioned earlier you host uh, more than one lesson with him yeah so that should so be... both of my co-hosts are going to be on the alien resurrection episode yeah but not i don't think at the same time oh that's too bad <laughs> they hate each other those guys they because they keep fighting over me Good to know. I'll have to have some choice Tyler Smith uh, questions. Goodness. Let's and you guys are doing Prometheus as well, right? Yes, and Scott Nye is uh, going to be a guest. There you go. Are you guys going to do uh, the aforementioned Alien versus Predator films? Um, If we will, it'll be at a later time. I, I really don't want two months of Aliens and Predator movies. We, we had considered doing a special episode where we just talk about all the Alien spinoffs, the novels, the comics, the games, the Alien versus Predator movies. Yeah, that is real quick. One last thing uh, about yeah. Alien. I know that we're signing off, but that's interesting that you say that because uh, there are a handful of movies, maybe more than a handful, that it's hard to believe there was a time when they didn't exist. Uh, Jaws is one of them. Uh, movies like The Godfather, Star Wars. Um, and that, that's probably because I was born, you know, after they were released. But, uh, you know, it's not hard for me to believe that there was a time when you know, the deer hunter didn't exist, but there are just some movies that are so iconic. You feel like they've always been a part of American culture because, you know, Darth Vader is so pervasive. He's everywhere. And the alien is, is everywhere. It's hard to believe that it's only been around for 36 years. That seems like a long time, but when you realize like, that's not actually in the history of film, it's not that long, really. Um, you know, film was around for 65 years before Alien came along, and then, uh, and then Alien showed up, and it was all over the place. Action figures, books, video games, uh, parodies, it just all over the place. And it's, it's so crazy to think that, uh, that this horror movie that is, that is with, you know, may, uh, crazy phallic imagery, courtesy of H.R. Uh, Giger, um, that society accepted it as readily as it did um, to the extent that now, like, everybody... I would venture to say that, you know, 90% of the people in the world, if you show them a picture of the alien, they know what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those movies that my wife watched when she was too young, and now she can't sit through any alien film without even if she flips through the tv and it pops up she'll just scream and change the channel she has a very that it, it's just one of those iconic designs uh and and such an iconic movie and i mean i have to think of people that watched this film originally you know this was sigourney weaver's first film that must have been a big surprise that she's the one that survives at the end yeah yeah 
And uh, you're mentioning the games, Thrasher. One last thing, and then we're signing off. Um, I have played a bit of the new video game, Alien Isolation. Oh, yes. Which takes place... You play as uh, Ripley's daughter, and you're investigating these ships and the aliens on board, but it's almost like the first Bioshock game. But anyway, they do a good job of conveying the atmosphere of the first film with uh, even the way how the doors look and how there's steam everywhere. I've gotten quite frightened playing it, even though I haven't bumped into an alien yet. I'm just walking through corridors. Now, I've been told that the insides of all the lockers look identical. Identical. Can you confirm that? I have not done locker reconnaissance yet, but I'll let you know. Um, okay, Tyler, where can people catch you at? You can find me at battleshippretension.com, uh, where we have a weekly podcast. It goes up every uh, Sunday night, Monday morning. Uh, in which we talk about just various, I don't know when this is going up, but uh, but yeah, recent episodes include uh, discussing some of our favorite soundtracks with uh, Pat, Francis, and Mike Siegel. Uh, I believe the next episode that we'll be recording is about uh, what defines an epic, hmm. and so uh, so that's at battleshippretension.com, and then I also have morethanonelesson.com, which is uh, another podcast in which we talk about film from a, uh, from a Christian point of view. So there's going to be a lot in that. Uh, it is inherently preachy, so if that bothers you, do not listen because uh, I don't have the energy to deal with your complaints. But uh, the recent episodes include Exodus, Gods, and Kings, the terrible Saving Christmas, mm. and then in the next week or two, we will be doing an episode about uh, Birdman. And what's your Twitter handle? Oh, yes. Sorry. Uh, I have two of them. Uh, one is at Tyler Pretension, and the other is at More Lessons. Great. Well, uh, thanks for coming on, Tyler. Oh, thank you for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. It was fantastic having you on. It was fantastic being on. What do you think of that? I like hearing that. <laughs> Great. All right. Good night. All right. Bye. Okay, Thrasher, uh, what about you? Well, you can follow me online at Internet Mayor. Uh, also, uh, I have a. Uh, uh, I will. Uh, I'm going to be doing some independent podcasting on my own. You can back me on that on my Patreon page or Patreon page, depending on what part of the country you're from. Just look for me uh, at uh, Willie T. Uh, and uh, other than that, I am looking for a looking forward, very forward to a whole more, another year of the sequel cast. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at SequelCast, and if you're in Portland, Oregon, Tuesday nights from 8 to 10 p.m., I host a uh, pub quiz for geeks who drink at the Iconic Lounge. So if you enjoy uh, answering tricky questions and drinking good beer and having cool food and stuff, uh, try it out. Uh, again, Tuesdays, 8 to 10 p.m. at the Iconic Lounge, I host a quiz for geeks who drink. And the Twitter handle, again, is at SequelCast. You can check out all the past episodes of the SequelCast at SequelCast.com. Uh, also, there's a Facebook page, Facebook.com slash SequelCast. Now, there's one thing I'd like to uh, talk about uh, before we wrap up the show. Indeed. And um, we were sort of talking about this off mic. And we got a, uh, a review recently of the SequelCast. Indeed. Would you like me to sing it? Um, let's let's discuss it. So, I mean, I, I think the review was fair. Let me, the, the website was at Bill's Movie Emporium. It's a blog that, among other things, reviews a movie podcast. Indeed. And what 
he said on the... It's always interesting to read someone else's point of view listening to your show. And I, I like that he listens to more than one episode of a show before uh, reviewing it. And I did like that he listed which episodes that uh, he actually uh, went through. Yep, yep, and he does it with all the podcast reviews. And speaking of podcast reviews, you think a lot of... You think there'd be more of those, but there really isn't, apart from what you see on iTunes or whatever. So, uh, I just want to say thanks for for doing the... You know, if you're listening, Bill, for, for doing the review. Although, twist ending, he may never hear this. That's true, because he, he ultimately decides if he will keep on listening to the show or not. And he decided not to, but I like the way that he phrased it. Um, the premise is one that could bear fruit, but the fruit it bears is not the sort I am interested in eating. He's a pomegranate person, but uh, we lately quince. Yep. Um, and it's an interesting link. We'll have that at the Facebook uh, page, and I'll have that up in the show notes as well for people if they want to give it a read. So, um, for the sequel cast, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying... (laughs) Hello, my honey. Hello, my baby. Hello, my ragtime gal. Bum, bum, bum. You know, John Hurt, in retrospect, said he regrets doing that Spaceballs cameo because he felt it cheapens the original film. We know what we ought to do just to screw with uh, screw with listeners. We ought to put that <laughs> at the begin put put that sequence at the beginning of the episode instead of an actual clip for me. The sequel cast is a hipster goblin production. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 